Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott, accountants and business advisors. And joining us today is our colleague here at Business in Vancouver, Patrick Blenner. Hassett. Patrick, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, of, of the course. Show. I like that yeah. tag. Nice. So- Patrick, uh, you are featured here in this week's edition of the newspaper. <laughs> well, not me personally. Not you personally, <laughs> but your byline is. Yeah. And a couple interesting stories that you were able to work on last week. Tell us a little bit about maybe what's going on with mobility pricing here in Metro Vancouver. Yeah, so I went to the uh, BC Engineering Conference uh, last week, and Daniel Firth, who's the executive director of the Mobility Pricing Independent Commission, was there. And he was talking about the first round of consultation that they did and the report that they just put out. And uh, he said some really interesting things. And I actually got a chance to ask him a question at the end of it during the Q&A session. And uh, he was a little uh, short with me on his answer. What did you ask? Uh, I asked him that, uh, was there any sentiment in the lower mainland that mobility pricing is pretty much just a fancy word for a commuter tax? And he uh, sort of said, yes, that is something that they've heard from the feedback from sort of the public opinion is that a lot of people are worried that if they're commuters, that they're going to get hit a lot harder. Um, But then again, I mean, essentially, I mean, that's what mobility pricing is set out to do is that it wants to dissuade people from commuting to work. And if they do commute to work, it wants them to take alternative modes of transportation. So, um, but there's a whole bunch of other things that first kind of mentioned that were really interesting about, um, cause he's worked on mobility pricing in, uh, two different cities, uh, Stockholm and London. So if we're going to have anybody running this, he's a pretty good guy because he's got a lot of experience in sort of implementing these. And he said that, Usually what happens is public sentiment is really low at the start. With it is with I'm anything. I'm shocked to hear <laughs> that people aren't willing to yeah. know, just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Eh, tolls here, there. Yeah, I, yeah. I use the word tolls loosely, but that's kind of what we're talking about. Exactly. And the idea that you'll be charged for using the roads. Yeah. And so he said when you implement this, people don't like it. In Stockholm and Sweden... After a few years, once people start to accept it, once they start to see the benefit of it, um, I think they were able to reduce congestion in downtown Stockholm by up to 10%. 10% is not a huge number, but you think about 10% during rush hour. Um, you think about 10% heading across to North Vancouver over the Lionsgate Bridge. I mean, that's a huge thing, right? So. Um, once people start to see the benefit, they realize that it's not a massive hit on their pocketbook. Um, uh, public acceptance goes way back up and it goes higher than it was at this, at their initial start. So, Well, isn't it that people, they want to see a return on their investment here? If they're putting money into the system, they want to see, say, traffic easing. They want to see improvements on the roads. Mm-hmm. And, and I just wonder if that actually maybe takes more than a, a week of, say, mobility pricing for that to actually happen. Yeah. One of the interesting things he said when he was doing his presentation was he was using Stockholm and what happened there. Um, They found that only about 10% of commuters switched to public transportation. But 20% of commuters vanished. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if they vanished into thin air, but they... That was the thing is they weren't totally sure where they went. So there was a gap. See, working from home? Yeah. And it was like, 
Have you guys tried working from home? Yeah, I, I predominantly I, work from home. So absolutely yes. love it. I well, <laughs> Ailey's pitching I, not, to work well, from home. Well, not for this here. job, but I've I've yeah. done it in previous jobs, and I had an arrangement, and it was good. Uh, I I've done it as a journalist before, I, like Patrick does, and, and I hate it. Like it's to me, I I feel like I can get distracted easily. I also kind of miss that human interaction, mm-hmm. you know, day to day. I and there's this kind of this big deal being made, you know, in the last few years about telecommuting. It's going to change everything, but it really hasn't taken off. Yeah. And so that's why I'm kind of skeptical. Did you say 20% of commuters vanished? vanished? I, I'm skeptical it's all just because of telecommunication. I, w- I wonder how many people were driving just for the maybe they didn't really need to, or I don't know. Yeah. So. Obviously, 10% of those did go to public transit. But here's what I think. And he kind of first kind of alluded to this later in his presentation. If you look at the Portman Bridge and what happened when they took the toll off there, was it 30,000 extra cars a week, right? Like the Portman went from being a ghost bridge to being super busy. So what I think happens is that people just take alternative routes mm. and skew the statistics, right? Okay. So the other 10%, yeah, maybe a couple, 2%, I want to say. I'm, I'm just throwing out numbers here. I can't verify any of this. Let's say 2% telecommuted. I want to say maybe the other 8% just took different routes to work mm. to bypass or the carpool? tolls. Or carpool, yeah. right? I'll, I'll even propose this. You bring up the Portman example, and I wonder how many people were just being savvy about how they drove that they were being very clinical about it like if i need to drive yeah if i need to go over the portman i'll do this but then all of a sudden if the portman opens up it's all free people are like i don't need to think about it i'll just drive 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 and i i just wonder if you know those vanishing commuters it, it's kind of like we have to think about it in reverse here versus what happened with the portman yeah right yeah and so maybe it's just people being a little less um, putting due thought into their driving priorities. If it's just convenience, I think it's maybe just the convenience factor. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you have kind of a, the inconvenience of a toll, so so to speak, people say, "No, I don't need to drive here for this particular thing. I can, mm. you know, hang back." Yeah. Hmm. And there's behavioral psychology and sort of behavioral economics that come into it. And I was trying to explain this to my dad because. My dad is notorious, well, I shouldn't say notoriously cheap, but he's very frugal. Okay. So whenever he comes down to Vancouver from Kamloops, he used to literally drive around the Portman Bridge. And I say, Dad, the extra gas yeah. that you're spending to drive through Mission to avoid the Portman <laughs> Bridge is about $3, which is what you're going to pay to go over the Portman. No, no, it's, I'm saving money, right? So that's the other thing is that we have to realize that people aren't necessarily rational when they make these changes. So the idea that Firth is kind of saying is that let us make the decisions because we can push you in the right direction. And I Mm. do think he makes a good point. As much as people are sort of against this, I do think having rather than having this free for all where the NDP just up and lifts the toll on the Portman Bridge and it's a and it's a massive rush on that thing. Let's do it right and let's do it proper and let's push people in the the right direction, right? So, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's a tough thing to convince people to do. Let, let's think about that transit plebiscite that we had a few years ago. Um, I totally understand if somebody wanted to vote against it because the previous government had promised that they 
you know, we're going to have, you know, other things go about, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I, I think it, it really should have been the government's responsibility to push people in maybe the direction that made sense. Cause this is money that we needed for trans, uh, transit infrastructure. Yeah. Same goes for say HST, uh, that referendum, you know, I, I can understand government said, no, we are not going to introduce this new system. And maybe that's why people voted against it. But if mm-hmm. you actually look at HST versus this hybrid system we have right now hst it actually makes way more economic sense you kind of need the government to push people in the right direction it doesn't always work out sometimes it is hard to convince people of what actually is in in their own best interest i would add to that too though there's a distinction between having options so say you live in langley and say there was rapid transit into vancouver but you choose to drive versus maybe not having any other options except driving and then being subject to attack so that could play into it as well Yeah. And the interesting thing is that this is pretty much the Mobility Pricing Independent Commission is pretty much the result of the failed plebiscite is that the government coming back to the drawing board and saying, obviously, the people aren't going to let us do this. So let's try and do it in sort of like a a rollout way. And it's funny because you look at what Firth was talking about and the money that they want to raise is pretty much identical to what the mayor's council wanted to get with the gas tax. So this is essentially, we said no to the plebiscite, and now the government's just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to do it, right? But we're going to do it right. And I think it's good. And I think it's, um, this is probably a better way because they've looked at plebiscites and referendums lately, and there's been a bit of a mindset shift. If you give an average voter a chance to say no to the government, it doesn't necessarily matter what it is. They're probably going to say no. Um being from Kamloops, there's an interesting uh, example. They had a referendum to change the old Kamloops Daily News building into an arts building, but they would need to raise taxes for the city. And basically everybody came out and said, hell no, we're not doing this. And they shot themselves in the foot because it would have created a great venue in downtown Kamloops, but people just wanted to stick it to the government right it didn't really matter what it was about and i think that's what happened to the plebiscite is that you gave people the opportunity to voice displeasure with the government on an overall basis right so Mm -hmm. makes sense well why don't we take a a short break patrick do you want to stick around with us and we'll come back and talk about some of these stories sure Sounds good. Well, this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting and assurance business advisory tax and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600 or else check them out on their website at manningelliott.ca. Haley, what's catching your eye with regards to business news this week? Well, I don't think we can not talk about the markets. Monday saw the Dow's biggest single-day point drop in history. It rebounded a little bit and closed uh, at its worst level in six years. So not a positive stat, but uh, it did make some recoveries there. S&P 500 shed about 8% from a record high 
the week before. Now, today we're recording this at 10.45 a.m. on Tuesday, so I want to make a note of that because the markets have been very volatile today, but they had some very sharp declines to start off the day. They've recovered a little bit, but markets in Europe and Asia feeling some impact. The interesting thing is there wasn't a single market event that triggered this. It seems to just be widespread concern about overvaluation, about rising interest rates in the U.S., about rising inflation and compounded by maybe some fear and panic in the markets. But that's certainly been a big story this week. Uh, the one thing that I find just absolutely you know, breathtaking about this is because the U.S. President, Donald Trump, he had tied his own uh, performance to the stock market. He said, hey, <laughs> look at how well the stock market is doing. It's because of me. Uh, is he going to own that? The stock market's not doing so no, well. No, of course not. No, he's not going okay. <laughs> to. <laughs> it's funny that you even ask this, that. This is why historically presidents don't point to the stock market yeah. as a gauge of how well they're per- performing at this point. Because it's, it's a very dangerous game that you're playing here. Well, and, I, and in all fairness, I don't think the market's are the best indicator for how well a president's doing because there's so many factors, too, to look at. It's not purely tied to what a president is or isn't doing. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly been haywire in the markets yeah. this week. I think the the part of it that I'm paying attention to is the federal interest rates in the states because they're sort of in the same boat as us. Is that do they raise them to sort of temper the economy and sort of bring about uh, sort of a balance, but then they risk inflation. So they're a little bit ahead of us, I want to say, in terms of raising their rates. So if this is a bellwether for the United States and the cascading effects that rising interest rates could have there, I mean, could this have an impact on us if we keep, if we do two more rate hikes this year, get up to like 2%, I mean, could that sort of spook a lot of investors? Could it spook our real estate market? I mean, there's well, a lot of... And that's the game that the Bank of Canada is playing right now, yeah. is how do you temper this with what the economy can handle versus you know what their policy would dictate that they mm. do? Um, I, I, I just think it's interesting that for you know decades, Canada and uh, the United States, they pursued you know the same monetary policy you know um, move up move down interest rates there uh but and i should say it's really canada following the u.s lead yeah but uh, you know for the last what uh two three years now canada's been going on its own they've been looking at what the country can do in its what makes sense for this as a smaller country at least population-wise versus natural resources. There's so many different factors in play. So it is interesting, this divergence in monetary policy between the two countries. Yeah. And as much as we've expanded our trade networks out to Asia and, and Europe and, and you know signing the new TPP, we still live and die by what the United States does and what we do with them concerning NAFTA and economic trade. So, I mean, I think... The thing that I want to, I think people should be paying attention to is obviously the jobs report as well from the states because that's another real marker. And the stock market, if you've ever sort of talked to somebody who's worked in stocks or worked sort of around the stock market, they really, uh, once again, live and die by that job report that comes out every month that shows how many jobs have been added, how many jobs have been lost. So that's another thing that seems to be expanding almost too fast in a way. So that's another thing I would say for people to watch out for. Yeah, a lot to consider. Tyler, what are you following? Well, speaking of big numbers, we have the acquisition of a Vigilon. This is a Vancouver-based mm-hmm. tech company specializing in HD surveillance software and hardware solutions. Uh, they're being acquired by Motorola Solutions for $1 billion US. This is a 
significant exit for a Vancouver tech company. And it kind of flies in the face of maybe what the goal is for the Vancouver tech company, which is creating more of these sorts of anchor companies. Just think about it. We have had in the last year, MDA, the aeronautics firm or the aerospace firm, they are reincorporating down in the United States. Uh, we also have Build Direct. They are trying to sell off their assets over uh, following their own bankruptcy issues. We've had Shoes.com. They filed for bankruptcy. They're out of business now. So it seems, is there like a ceiling that these tech companies can reach here in Vancouver before they hit you know, the sweet spots, uh, we, we, and I don't know if going bankrupt is necessarily a, a sweet spot, <laughs> but uh, with regards to Evigilon, how do you say no to a $1 billion exit, especially when you have the uh, same founder CEO in, in charge for all these years? I did the math. If you look at the number of shares that he holds with the company, what they're going to pay off for the outstanding shares, he's walking away with more than $100 million from this deal. Uh, the good news, though, is Alexander Fernandez, the CEO founder, he is a serial entrepreneur. He's now, this is, I think, his second exit. He is probably going to be knowing what to look for if he wants to make, say, angel investments in the tech community. Um, does he want to launch another company, go to that rodeo once again? It, it's possible. It's going to be fascinating to see what comes of uh, you know this you know exit here. I, I don't think it's necessarily bad news, even though it's another case where Vancouver is not building our own Amazon or, you know, Microsoft, for example, we're having yet another exit with a foreign company taking over one of our big name companies here. Mm -hmm. We talked about this on our BIV tech panel, actually, and it's a huge local story. And Ali Pordat, who's a regular on the panel, he said, you know, it might stay based here, like generally speaking, when companies are acquired, but the trend tends to be over the years, they eventually sort of become Americanized, jobs oh, yeah. leave south of the border, maybe a headquarter or locations close, or there might remain a presence, but it doesn't really become an anchor. But we've also talked to this with Amazon, their race to have that or that contest to have their second headquarters. Having an anchor company like that can dwarf an ecosystem. So that can be a consideration too. It's one thing if you have homegrown companies, but you know, if we had an Amazon, you have to think about the talent crunch and everything else. It, you know, can take resources away from smaller players sometimes. Well, the other question I think nobody's asking, well, I guess they're asking a little bit is like, where would an anchor company go? They don't have the office space in downtown Vancouver. Yeah. The other thing is they don't have the housing to uh, house all these people. So like that's the whole thing with Amazon was that th there's no way that they were going to set up shop in downtown Vancouver. I mean, you guys have talked about this. There's just no real estate available. So if we're going to create an anchor company, like, you know, it's going to have to go out in Surrey or it's going to have to go somewhere where they can actually have the office space to house these people, right? Yeah, we're, we are expecting to get the bid documents from the Metro Vancouver bid uh, with regards to HQ2 for Amazon. I don't know. I don't have an exact date or time when those will be released, but they are working mm -hmm. on it. What it was is a regional bid. I think they realize you're not going to put something in downtown Vancouver. So yeah. you need to, like you say, have something in Burnaby, something in Surrey, like different facilities everywhere. Good story in Bloomberg this week, uh, looking at the backlash against the uh, against Amazon with regards to the shortlisted cities for the HQ2 bid. A lot of the contrarians, they're saying, well, the reason why we're shortlisted is because we're already thriving and Amazon realizes that. That's why they're interested. So what do we really need Amazon for if they're going to you know, clog our streets with more traffic, create more housing affordability issues, mm -hmm. uh, put additional strain on the talent pool? Um, do we really need Amazon? If you're... 
a Boston or a Washington DC? I don't think so. You, I, I don't think you need to raise your profile, but maybe an Indianapolis or a, or a New Jersey would like to have that Amazon bid come their way. But is it really going to be worth it for these companies in the end for a lot of the issues that you brought up, uh, uh, Haley? Well, exactly. And I think there's some chatter too about, say, like the Detroits of the US that have seen industries collapse or people there who are in, you know, facing serious affordability challenges, losing their homes, don't have jobs. Like I could see a city like that benefiting. And I think some of them put in bids saying, you know, we'll give you anything you want. Please come to our (laughs) city. We have people. But yeah, I don't think we really saw that represented on the shortlist. Yeah. Anyway. I think you make a good point, Tyler, is there having a diversified economy where you're not living and dying by one industry. Is that the way of the future, right? And is that maybe a better way to go is that we don't have an anchor client. We don't have like a Seattle has their Boeing because you look at what happened with Boeing in Seattle. They did great for a couple decades, but then they started to slide. Mm-hmm. And that really hurt the city because they didn't develop anything substantial around it. So well, they've got Amazon now. So they have Amazon they've got there, so they pivoted. Yeah. yeah so. So, um, but guys, uh, great you know, picking your brains about all these fun issues this week. Uh, Haley, if anybody wants to find you on social media, what's the best way to do that? My handle is at Haley Wooden. And if you want more business news, head on over to BIV.com. We have a fairly new website, a couple of weeks old now, but you can feel free to check it out. What it lo- you? Yeah, it looks very nice. Uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And you guys should also know that this podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I'm skipping over you, Patrick, because uh, Faithful is <laughs> Listeners should already know that you're really not on social media bandwagon. Take a find me. I, my email's out there. Okay. It's in the ether. In the ether. <laughs> you got a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, great show, guys. Uh, this is the Business in Vancouver podcast. <laughs>